2008, I went as a financial bailout. <laughs> nice, I how appropriate, dressed- yeah. And now. <laughs> I'm the captain now. <laughs> Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sit off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? How are you doing today? You know, thank you so much for listening, and I am Chris. And I'm Christine, and welcome to episode 114 of the Chris and Christine Show. Do-do-do-do! Fantastic! You know what today is, right? It is uh, Monday the 17th. I know, we're coming coming a little later on this episode because we've been kind of busy over the weekend. And it's a three-day weekend, so why not? And it's a holiday, right? Yes, well, it's a holiday for me, but it's just a day off for you. Yeah, yeah, normally. So, so hey, be- no work day. Yes, no work. It's always so much fun. And mm-hmm. even more fun is that today, live in the studio, we have a actual another VIP guest r- joining us right now in studio. And well, his name is? Jacob. Jacob. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. And today, I guess yesterday, was officially the kickoff of birthday week for both you and Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think that you'd have a stepbrother that has a birthday just one day apart from you? No. It's kind of fun though, huh? Yeah. We have lots of presents and stuff around here on birthday weeks. Yeah. Hey, Jacob, didn't you just come back from uh, sixth grade camp? How was that? It was good. What'd you do out there? A uh, bunch of stuff. Did yeah. it like make you like be in a tent out in the wilderness and no. like learn how to fight off bears? Oh, did you have to like make fire out of sticks? No, they just made us collect sticks. Collect sticks? What, what for? To make a fire. Oh, well, that's, I guess that's how you started, I guess. Huh? Yeah, but he, the guy that made the fire used matches. Oh, that's, that's, that's cheating. That's not a survival skill. Well, but were they, the, were they like the waterproof mattress, matches? I don't know. Well, they were just you. matches he used. Matches you get from Walmart. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> survival skills of the 21st century. There we go. <laughs> but Jacob, you are turning 12 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does that feel? I don't know. I feel old. You do? You feel old now? Is old your body wise? starting to ache? What? I'm getting arthritis, back pains, no. all of that? Not yet. Do you need a cane yet, you think? No. Are you ready for retirement? <laughs> no. Thinking about it, though, huh? Zeke might. Oh, uh, Zeke's older, huh? Hey, yeah. how, how old are you guys? Between you and Ezekiel, who's older? Okay, how much? How many years older? Like five. Yeah, he's turning 17. Wow. I, I can't believe it. It's like... He's turning 17. Next year, he's going to be 18, a full adult. It goes so fast. Jacob, I think you were eight years old when I met you, and now you're turning 12. It's crazy. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah. You were like so little when I met you, and you were like so friendly, and now you're like- All grown up. All grown up. Are you friendly still? No. I know. (laughs) (laughs) At least you admit it. (laughs) What does it feel like to be like a preteen? You're one year away from being an official teenager. I don't know. Is it like you feel like we're too, do we baby you too much? Yeah, a little. Oh, oh I think you're super too cool for school now, huh? <laughs> hey, so this is your first year in a middle school because you went from elementary, graduated there, and then went to like, now you're like in the big kid school, so to speak, right? So your sixth grade, so your school goes sixth, seventh, and eighth, right? Yeah. 
Okay, so you're in the sixth, and then so are you kind of like I don't remember in high school it's like the freshmen, freshmen yeah. are always ones getting picked on and being teased. They're always kind of like, oh, you little freshman, you don't know nothing. Do the eighth graders pick on you guys? No, it's opposite. Oh, <laughs> sixth graders are like big man on campus. You pick on the eighth graders? Yeah. What? What do you guys do? I don't know stuff. Like <laughs> like, do you pull pranks on them? Yeah. Yeah. And everyone else. Oh, pranksters! Better watch out for those sixth graders. Well, so you went to sixth grade camp. That was like your first time at sleepaway camp. And then uh, you have birthday week. What are you excited about for being 12 years old? My birthday. Yeah? What, why are you excited about that? Because I get presents. Oh, uh, well, it's just like Christmas, I guess, all over again. So yeah, Except for it's like um, not even a month later. Yeah, oh, totally. I, I know. I forget all about that. You know, buy Christmas presents. You're like, wait a second. She has a birthday coming up? <laughs> Christmas like a month ago. I know. I'm still we, recovering from Christmas. And we have Jacob and Zeke. It definitely makes for mm-hmm. a busy month for us because Zeke's birthday is on the 18th and then yours is on the 19th. Mm-hmm. Last year, do you remember what we did for you guys? We had like a giant van with a bunch of like, video games and stuff. Like yeah, that. we had a video game truck. That was pretty cool. There was only like, I don't know, like eight of you there, huh? Yeah. Got to have like everybody had their own game console, basically. Yeah, that was good. Uh, would you like to have one of those vans like forever? Like to have it in the front yard? Like it'd be your like gaming studio? Maybe, but now I have an Xbox in my room. Oh. oh. Well, speaking of that, what is on your birthday list for your 12th birthday? Um, oh, I want um one of those like steering wheels to attach to your Xbox. Really? Ooh, what is that for? Like, could you like drive away in it? Yes, yeah, you drive away your Xbox. <laughs> so you get the steering wheel, and then you need the tires, right, to go on the bottom of the Xbox. And you sit like a skateboard. Well, you sit he on has it. like the tires on the the gaming chair, and that's supposed to be like a gaming chair for race cars. So oh. basically, maybe it feels like you're in a car. Is it like? Do you play like GTA or something? GTA. No. Grand Theft Auto. Oh. What games do you play where you need a steering wheel? Forza. What's that? Forza. Forza Horizon 5. Have you heard of Fiza? What is that? Sixa? <laughs> <laughs> What's Forza? It's a racing game. Okay. A, ra- a racing game, huh? Mm-hmm. What kind of cars do you like to race in Forza? Um, McLarens, Lamborghinis. Ooh. Z's? Uh, yeah, I'll have one. Ooh. Ooh. He's got a whole set of them. Awesome. Well, we really, we really wanted to have Zeke on the show today, too. But unfortunately, he is still under quarantine and still battling COVID for the second time. I was able to see him over this weekend, though, when I was up in the Fresno area. From a distance, I set up a, a socially distanced little picnic birthday celebration for him. But gosh, poor guy. He's like quarantined for his 17th birthday and he just barely started his new school. And that's just got to be so rough. Oh, it's got to be hard. Yeah. yeah. So we're sending all of our love to Ezekiel and wishing him the happiest birthday. I did send a little delivery that's being delivered tomorrow. His special request. He's getting chocolate covered strawberries because he doesn't eat cake. So I think that's a pretty good delivery. Don't you, Jacob? Yeah, chocolate. I love chocolate uh, strawberries. What do you like? What is your favorite kind of cake, Jacob? You had any kind of choice? Chocolate. But what kind, though? I think there's kind. There's a particular kind you like. In fact, there's a whole factory restaurant around this type of cake. Oh, cheesecake. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You are like the cheesecake lover. You got a slice of cheesecake last night. But uh, you got to pick anywhere you wanted to go for birthday dinner, which we're doing tonight. Where did you pick? Benihana's, of course. Of course. What is your favorite thing about Benihana's you think you like? To make the volcano thing and like the fire comes out is cool. 
For people that don't know what Benihana is, because maybe they don't have one near them, can you describe what they do at that restaurant and what makes it special? They make the food right in front of you on like some thing or grill or something, and then like they do a bunch of tricks with it. Oh, they tricks with the food, like flip yeah, it around and like, like one time they did, like were like juggling with the eggs and with their spatulas and stuff. Oh, really? That's so fun. And yeah. it's a Japanese restaurant. So mm-hmm. we, what do you typically order when we go there? Steak Ooh. and shrimp. And shrimp. And some soup. Oh, the fried yeah. rice is good there, too. And huh? the fried rice. Is yes, so it's, it's so really good. It's really good. They, they, you know, they put like this uh, garlic butter in the fried rice, make it taste really good. It's so yeah. good. And it upsets my stomach so bad afterwards. But it's so worth it's so it, though. Buttery. Isn't it? I know. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to pay for this in, in 45 minutes. But for this 45 minutes, I'm happy. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, Jacob, uh, you're at 12, which means in a, well, how many more years until you turn 16? That's going to be... Four years. Four more years. Three be, years away from getting your learner's permit. What do you think about that, Jacob? Since you're a big pro driving your Xbox, you think you can drive a regular car? Yeah, maybe. I might crash into a wall a couple of times. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, you're not going to drive the Explorer then. Maybe I might, mess, I may, I might mess up your car. Oh, no. You know what's funny? In the video game he plays, there's actually a rewind button. I said, you don't have that in real life. <laughs> it's like he crashes. He hits the rewind. Back to where he was started. Let's do this again. It would be nice if he had that. Don't they have that, right? <laughs> yeah, they do have that. Yeah. Don't they have that on one of the new features? Um, no, nope, it's called like like the red light cameras where they like catch pictures of you. Or, you know, some people drive and they have like GoPros in, in their front of their vehicle. So right. maybe you could get that and just watch yourself crash over and over again. But no crashing. We need safe drivers only. Okay. Well, do you think you can be a study? If you study now for the test, you might be able to pass it by the time you hit 15, 16, yeah? The rules change, though, don't they? I don't know. How hard can it be, right, Jacob? I don't know. Uh-huh. If, you, if you've ridden a car your whole life, I think you figure figure it out by now. Well, the question is, Chris, did you pass your permit test on the first time? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, try it the second time? No. Oh, he no. Didn't, he didn't pass it until he was 25. The third time? No. Oh my gosh, seriously, how many times did you have to take it? Four. No way. Four times my permit and twice on the driving. Okay, can I tell you something? Yes. I never had to get a learner's permit. Wait, do you even have a license? Arrest this woman. <laughs> she have a license. I was so scared to get my driver's license that I waited. My parents made me go when I was almost 18 years old. And there was a rule at that time, which you once you re- reached 17, you didn't have to get a learner's permit. You could just do your behind the wheel training and go straight for your driver's license. I've never heard of that. What's what oh, country? I'm 17 is now. Oh, there you go. <laughs> what country is this in? Um, it was in the country in Kingsburg. <laughs> oh, the King's land. That's part of the King's. The King just goes up to you and says, you have a license. He knights you with a with sword. <laughs> so no. You are now knighted a driver. No. You may drive You're without so crashing the car. No. But Jacob, we're really excited for you to be turning 12 years old. I'm sad that we don't get to spend your actual birthday with you because you'll be at your mom's house. But what kind of fun are you planning for your actual birthday? Um, I'm not going to go to school. I'm what? Watch a movie. <gasps> what movie? Then, uh, the new Scream movie. What? You and mom? Uh, yeah. So fun. And what else are you gonna and do? Then, um, I think we're gonna go. Um, I don't know. We're gonna go pick up Mason and Jack, my little brother Jackson from school. And then we're gonna um, eat. My mom's gonna make steak dinner. Ooh. And then we're gonna eat that, and then celebrate our birthday. <gasps> so Ooh, fantastic, fun. awesome! That's very exciting. Big twelve years old, man. I you love know, I- that you get two celebrations. Like I think that some kids would be like, "Oh, I hate having two houses," but you guys haul out. You get like birthdays in two places, Christmases yeah. in two places, plus with like 
three or four sets of grandparents, like you got it made. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a, yeah, I can't argue with that. <laughs> can't argue with that. What did you ask your mom for for your birthday? Um, I asked her for um the Xbox um Series Two Elite controller, so I have one there. Oh, because well, you already have one here, huh? Yeah. You can't what? just take it back and forth. Oh. What does that controller do? Like, like for those who don't know, is it does it make you coffee or what does it do? Yeah, it makes you coffee. No, um, <laughs> uh, basically, um, you can adjust like everything on the controller so that it's easier for you. Like, you can adjust it and change out the buttons. If you don't like the buttons that is on it, you change it. It comes with a bunch of other buttons to put on. Oh, that's cool. And then you can like, uh, so it comes with a tool. You can like do something uh, to like the. Uh, the one of the triggers, Ooh. so that, um, you sort of have to push the button all the way down. You just like go like like that. Like wow! So bit. it make you makes you like able to go quicker. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Oh look at and that! It works really good in cod. Who? Cod. Who's Is that it? what a fish? No. What's cod? Cape Cape cod. Oh, Call of Duty. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. so I'm so out of the loop. Are you still? Do you still like play the fort? The fort? Fort club? What's it called? Fort? Fort? Forza? Fortnite? That's no, the one. Yeah. No, nope. Nope. Why not? Nope. It's not cool anymore? <laughs> nope. Never was. Oh. Oh, you're too cool yes. for school. Okay. All right. So we don't play Fortnite anymore. Yeah, We're no, going to pretend like no we never does. did. Is Pac-Man no still a thing? I don't know. Is that's what the- I don't know. <laughs> He's Tet- cool. He's in the cool kids club what, now. Is Tetris still a thing around? Oh, yeah. I love Tetris. I do too. I think yeah. Tetris is always cool. Yeah, they have it on Switch. Oh, they do? So you have a Nintendo Switch and an Xbox. Yeah. Whoa. Oh. Now, a Nintendo Switch, for those who don't know, you can play it on your like a mobile device, and then you also can play it like on the TV, like yeah. a big screen or whatever, too, at the same time. That's why they call it the Switch, because it switches from handheld to console. Yeah. But I heard the graphics aren't as good as like a Xbox, are they? Or about the same, you think? They're about the same. Oh, wow. really? Well, I wanted to share a little bit about Ezekiel's birthday. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah, go right ahead. So I was, you know, he's on quarantine and he's not able to be with us on the show, but I did a special little setup for him on his birthday because he and his dad are under quarantine. They have a little park at the apartment complex where they live. So I went to the store and I got like a gold tablecloth and black plates and little plastic champagne glasses and a bunch of balloons, and I set up a table for him outside so that we could keep our distance but still celebrate. And I set up because his dad can't even go to the store right now because they're under quarantine. So set up this table outdoors for him. Um, gold and black are the Steelers colors, and he's a huge Steelers fan. And then I got black and gold balloons for him and uh, went to Chipotle because he loves Chipotle. And I got him his favorite, which are bowls and uh, with steak and rice and lettuce and bottled Coke, because that's his favorite, and poured it in the little champagne glass for him. And then when he walked out from uh, walking from his dad's apartment, he was so excited to see that I had this surprise set up for him and um, had some gummy bears because he really wanted ice cream, but I couldn't bring ice cream and it like get melty. But um, we were able to sit from a far distance from each other and do a celebration and I'm really sad that I don't get to like be around him for his birthday because typically we like to do a celebration for each of you two and he would be down here for the weekend and we'd do like Zeke's birthday day on like a Saturday and then Jacob's birthday day on a Sunday and it's like a whole weekend of celebrating but you know did the best that I could and we'll just have a makeup birthday for Zeke when he comes down here next. Yeah, by right. the way, about the Steelers they lost yesterday to 
the Chiefs. Yes. Oh, we're not going to talk about that. But I they, know. you know, they put up a good fight and they made it to the postseason. And that's what's important. I know. It wasn't for the fact the Chargers lost. The Chiefs, the, uh, sorry, the Steelers wouldn't even be there. Oh, well, <sighs> see. So at least the Steelers are best than, better than the Chargers. Yeah. yeah but, but, you know, I know that Zeke loves Mahomes. That's obvious. Yeah. So I guess that, you know, Zeke's, even though his Steelers lost, Mahomes still plays for the Chiefs. And that's kind of a win. He's a fan of him. So. Me too. Like, yeah. That's why I like the Chiefs. Yeah. yeah. Do you, do you, are the Chiefs your NFL team you like? Yeah. The Chiefs? Oh, that's cool. Maybe awesome. to, to get you a jersey or maybe some gear, some uh, Chiefs mm-hmm. gear. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, but okay, I wanted to finish on Zeke's thing really quick. So present-wise, he was asking for, uh, he loves collecting like baseball cards and sports cards, and he wanted the 2021 draft pick basketball cards and football cards. And so... He just asked for one pack of each, but I got him five packs Whoa. of each. Yeah, he was so excited. And then uh, got him this Steelers jacket he's been wanting since Christmas. And he showed it to me. And I went back to the store and I got it for him. And then he got a Steelers shirt um, from his grandma and grandpa. And so he was super excited and really loved it. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, um, so uh, I have a little surprise for you. Oh. For him and for Ezekiel, for for anybody sharing a birthday today, but especially for these two guys that are here, where Ezekiel's not here physically, but he is here in spirit. He's so. here in spirit. So, okay, uh, what is your little surprise? Are you going to cue it up for us? I'm going to play the. We have the Happy Birthday Band in the studio. Ooh, and all, who's the lead singer? Um, Chris <laughs> from the Chris and Christine show, uh, or Christine could be the lead. Singer. No, nope, I'm not no, the lead no, singer. It was, it was like four people: Chris one, Chris two, Chris three, and Chris. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, definitely. So All here's right. what we're gonna do. We're gonna play. He's gonna serenade you. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Get the band warmed up. Here we go. Ooh, I like this. Lead singer. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Me. Happy birthday to you. To Zeke. And Zeke. Happy birthday, Ezekiel. And Jacob. Happy birthday. <laughs> to you can't believe you guys are 12 and 17 we're getting old chris tell me about it yeah don't know what we're gonna do with two teens happy birthday to you guys we hope you have a great birthday week we love you so much let's party and happy birthday that song that you put together thank you to our lead singer chris he doubles as a podcaster and you can hire him for your uh special events but uh coming up next we are going dollars per second (laughs) five hundred dollars per second wow what a deal (laughs) i think think i'm underrated speaking of raising teens and birthdays we have a fantastic guest coming up after this who's going to help give us some tips about career coaching and how to get yourself back in the game. And he's going to be back with us right after this. Blind Knowledge. Well, check it out, y'all. My name is Joey B. I am back on the airwaves, and I am presenting to you Blind Knowledge. We're bringing your podcasts. We're bringing your live streamers. We're bringing your artists. We're bringing your musicians. We're bringing you all of the content creation we can because we rock, and so do you. So come join us. Come see what the hoopla is all about. And we hope you take something away from here. So again, blindknowledge.com starting January 20. 
22. And welcome back, everybody. Today's VIP guest is an author, educator, and speaker. He has expertise in technology, helping businesses get off the ground, and career planning. I've really been looking forward to this interview all week long because this guest is passionate about many topics that are near and dear to my heart. Let's welcome to the show, Mark Hirschberg. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate you showing up today, man. Hey, uh, how was your flight over here? <laughs> oh, nice and easy. That's excellent. No, but in all seriousness, where are you joining us from in the world today, Mark? Right from Midtown Manhattan. Ooh, that sounds yeah, very yeah. fancy. Are you in, looking out at the city right now? I'm looking out at my neighbors across the courtyard because <laughs> this is Midtown Manhattan and that's how we roll. That's awesome. So what's the weather like over there? Are you guys still really cold? Is it snow everywhere? Still cold. We did not get hit with the snow in the city. I know other parts of this area did, but uh, not snowy, just very cold. It's definitely a different climate than it is here in sunny San Diego. I remember my very first trip to New York City. It was the week before Christmas. And, you know, California girl, I just packed like a regular, I call it a California coat. And I walked out of JFK and there was a vendor right outside that was selling like scarves and gloves right there on the curb. And I was like buying all kinds of stuff because that Sold. Is, is a different kind of cold over there on the East Coast. <laughs> that was a well-placed vendor. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, but so how long have you been in New York City? I moved here about 17 years ago. Although I was technically born in New York and grew up in the suburbs. Okay, okay. Uh, when you say New York, was it the city, suburbs of, of the city or suburbs of the state? I was born in the city itself, and I would say the suburbs of the city, usually within about an hour or so of the city uh, for a good deal of my life. Was it like Long Island? It was Westchester and then New Jersey. Oh, awesome. Okay. Jersey boy. All right. Well, so we have to ask you because we had another guest on the show just the other day that was native of New York also. But what are your favorite things about being born and bred in New York? I think a good appreciation for pizza, <laughs> for bagels, and for just that New York lifestyle. I am direct. I am fast paced. I am energy, not frantic energy, but let's just get things done energy. And that's probably part of the hallmark of who I am. That's awesome. Now you mentioned New York bagels. I didn't know that there was a real difference. I thought that just like Einstein bagels or oh, Uncle Harry's on. or whatever was like the way to go until one of my friends uh, moved here from the East Coast. And she's like, okay, when you go to Boston, you got to try an actual East Coast bagel. There's a, It's a whole different story. Like, we don't have real bagels in California. I think that outside of the East Coast, very few people have real bagels. Do you have a favorite kind? There's no one store, but New York bagels in particular, the water in New York, the nature of the minerals in it is what makes the pizza and the bagels so incredibly good. And when I travel, particularly when I see ex-New Yorkers, before I head out to the airport, I'll stop by a bagel place because this is New York. And so there's three bagel places within about two blocks of my place. Wow. I'll pick up a dozen bagels, 
Of course, that's like 14 bagels by New York standards. <laughs> awesome. And take it with me and give it as a gift to a friend because you can actually freeze bagels so they can stay a while in your freezer and they can have New York bagels even when they're far from home. That's so funny. I actually had a friend that asked me to do that when I was in Harvard for a seminar and she's like, can you just bring me a bag of egg bagels? And I was like, sure thing. <laughs> You know, it's true what you said about the water, though, Mark, because I did hear that the water does make the difference with the dough in New York. Huge difference. I believe there is a bagel place in L.A. that actually imports their water from New York so they can make New York bagels on the West Coast. That's amazing. Interesting. I wonder what the, wonder what the water's about, though. I wonder, I mean, because I think this water's water. You can always kind of clean it and purify it how you want. But just kind of wondering about it's that. It's minerals, I think. Is it's what the minerals saying, yeah. in the water. Well, well, that's amazing. Here you go, listeners. You got uh, your own personal tutorial on New York pizza and New York bagels, which is awesome. Well, uh, so you you said you moved to the city 17 years ago. What was it that brought you back to the city? I was living in Boston. I went to school up in Cambridge. and I was living in Boston, Cambridge for a number of years, but really wanted a change of pace. And so I'd been looking to move to New York for a couple years. I finally started dating a woman in New York who was... Ooh. Not necessarily the inspiration, but the catalyst for that move. And that helped get me back to New York City. Oh, you know, that, that's always how it works out, though. You, <laughs> fo- you follow a woman somewhere, and then uh, there you go. Yeah, a good deal of my life was motivated by trying to meet my future wife. Oh, yes, as that it is, is for many men. It is. That's how we always roll from day one. Probably like day, probably like age six or seven, I think we started doing that. <laughs> following the ladies around. Well, oh, yeah. Well, you talked about living in Cambridge, and uh, there's some pretty prominent universities in that area. Um, and looking at your background, looks like you had the chance to be educated at some of those great institutions. I was. I did two undergraduate degrees at MIT, and then my master's degree at MIT. I've now been teaching at MIT for the past 20 years. And I did spend a year helping at Harvard Business School, helping two professors to develop a class that's used over there as well. Fantastic. You know, the only thing I know of MIT is the movie uh, 21, where they were counting cards <laughs> at the MIT and they flew to Vegas. Um, was you... it MIT? Yeah, I think it was sure. MIT. Those were friends of mine. I, in fact, my former roommate was president of the MIT Blackjack Club. What? No way. All right. We've got a celebrity here for you, ladies and gentlemen. So, so was that, it's all based on a true story. I'm sure some of it's kind of Hollywooded up a little bit, right? The drama of the movie, the plot line is Hollywood. But there were a group of students at MIT who learned to count cards. It's the math is pretty basic. It's a lot of memorization. So you right. learn to count cards. You learn to keep the count at the table and then just go and bet. And my roommate would come back and he'd say things like, oh, yeah, you know, we're we're down 150000 this weekend. Oh, we're up 200000 this weekend. I actually – I didn't realize he was keeping a lot of cash in our kind of – uh, very rundown <laughs> apartment in Cambridge, which if anyone knew we had hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash in this apartment, we would have been robbed in about two seconds. Now, in the movie, the kid was hiding in like the vent. Where, where did he hide his money at? <laughs> he just had a small lockbox he kept under his bed. Oh, okay. It was locked, though, I, you said, right? I mean, it was locked. You could probably just take a hammer and smash that thing open. <laughs> God, that's crazy. That's so bizarre. Now, I want to know, in the movie, the professor was the bankroll. Who actually was the bankroll? The way it worked, and the group 
from what I understand, was starred by a professor back in the 80s. But the bankroll was actually, it was, I believe, an LLC. It was some type of legal entity. No way. And there were investors. So what would happen is people would put money into a fund. The fund might run for, I think, about six or 12 months. And then the members of the team would go out and they'd play. They received a certain hourly rate. They were paid based on their skill levels. There are different rankings of how skilled you were. So you got an hourly rate, win or lose, for just being there, putting in the time. Because statistically, you're going to lose just under half the time. You still need to be compensated. Then you got some bonus payout. The better you did, you got some bonus structure. And then once the team was paid out, the remaining cash went back to the investors. That sounds like quite the operation over there. And, you know, from the little that I know about MIT, it's a school that's really focused on a lot of the like math and science. Did you surround yourself with a lot of smarty pants? Were you one of them? Well, everyone at MIT is extremely smart. You just can't get in there if you're not. And all of us are very quantitative and analytical Even the English majors are still taking two semesters of physics, two of calculus, one of chemistry, one of biology. So you're still taking lots and lots of science, even if you're a humanities major. I didn't even realize that MIT had humanities majors. I think from the outside looking in, I thought it was just like more math and science. Is it like has a lot of different types of major offerings? We do. We have history, literature, language, music. We are one of the top philosophy schools in the country, one of the top political science schools in the country. I believe we're very strong in linguistics. We also have more humanities requirements than any other university, at least in the U.S., a quarter of your classes at MIT have to be in the humanities. Wow. Why, Why is that, you think? Because we recognize that... Well, at most schools, they say, oh, you have to take a science or a math because we know you don't want to and we want right. to round you out. At you MIT, we're, we're generally taking science and math and a lot of it, and we certainly have in the requirements. But we want to make sure our students get rounded out the other way because math and science really should be done and engineering should be done in the context of society. And we have to understand society to do that. Absolutely. And you hit on a really important point. One of the things, because I work in education full time, that I've observed is sometimes when students get too into math and science and it's not directly applied to the careers, you find you have graduates that are super head, head smart or book smart, as Chris and I call it, but not so street savvy with like the career skills that a person would need. Do you find that that's something that you've observed in your work at MIT? 100%. In fact, this is why 20 years ago, we started what's referred to as MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where we wanted to emphasize these skills that otherwise aren't taught at MIT or frankly, really at most universities. They're skills most people don't pick up. They don't formally get trained in. And we want to be more explicit in training our students so they could be more successful. Because getting to career success typically isn't just about direct problem solving in your domain. So for example, I began as a software engineer. I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. That wasn't just about doing better solutions to the engineering problems. It wasn't about being faster or smarter on the engineering side. Sure, I had to be good at that. 
but there were all these other skills, leadership, negotiating, team building, hiring, and no one teaches you that, not just at MIT, but in any university. So if you want to go far in your career, whether that's a title or just your own ability to contribute, you need to develop these other skills. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's kind of crazy how how uh, people come out into the job. We were just talking about this, Christine and I, how like, I, I think it was at the millennial generation that would step out of college and they'd be like, okay, where's my six-figure salary or seven-figure salary? Where's my three weeks vacation? Where's all this stuff? Where you know, I, I deserve this stuff. And it doesn't quite work out that way. I have certainly seen that at some of the companies I've been a part of. And so first understanding expectations, right. but also understanding what the path will be like to get there and what's reasonable and setting a career plan. In fact, of the skills companies want to see in individuals they hire, having a career plan is one of them. They want their employees to have a sense of where they're going because that will make them more effective employees. Absolutely. And as I think back to my own college education, I was a political science major and I minored in economics. And when I look at what my coursework was, it was uh, humanities classes, English, there was sociology, psychology, there's a lot of different um, like research and methods classes. But there wasn't a single course on project management or I took some a certificate pathway in like mediation, arbitration, and conflict resolution, but I had to pay extra for that outside of my coursework. And I just remember graduating at 22 years old and then going into teaching and stepping into my first classroom and being like, okay, but how do I manage all these tiny humans? And how do I work with the other adults in my department to be able to develop common assessments and collaborate? I completely lacked those specific career skills. One of the problems with the university is it's run by professors. Oh, right. Now, I love professors. I work with them. They are smart, fantastic people, but they don't know how the real world works. <laughs> and I, I've gotten this direct from them. They say, look, right. we don't know what's happening outside of these walls. And so when you look at how the university system was designed and grew up over the last 900 years or so, what we've done is we've taken people who are deep experts in some area. So let's pretend it's marketing. Someone comes in and says, I want to major in marketing. And the professors, the ones who are the experts say, okay, here's what we're gonna have you do. Take these introductory classes, some intermediate classes, pick a few advanced classes, if you do all this, if you pass all these classes, we're going to give you a piece of paper saying you have a bachelor's degree in marketing. And what that paper is really saying is that you have accumulated a certain level of knowledge in marketing. You've achieved this understanding, this knowledge, that's it. They are not saying you are actually a capable or effective marketer. Right. Right. They're certainly not saying you're a good employee. They're just saying you've achieved this knowledge. And that was fine back, say, 1950, when you'd come out of school and you'd go into this big corporate bureaucracy, you'd be a little cog, and you sat at your desk and your boss would say, oh, so you're a marketing person. Come up with a slogan, call me when you're done, I'll give you your next assignment. And all you had to do was be that simple cog and do one little thing that you were told to do and not think outside the box. So the degrees were sufficient around that time 
But as we shifted, as we eliminated middle management, as we moved to flatter teams, as we moved to organizations where I don't say to my team, each of you work on this, call me when you're done. I say, here's the goal. You guys are now going to figure out how to get there, or even to tell me that goal is wrong and why. We need a different set of skills, and academia has not adapted to the new need. You know, it kind of reminded me when you're saying that there, Mark, is that like, you know how before you get your driver's license to drive a car, you can study about the rules of the road. You can study about the vehicle. But until you physically are in the car on the road with other people driving crazy around you, you don't get that taste of it. That I mean, how can you be a good driver without actually doing it? And I think the same thing applies with any of that kind of academic stuff, as you're saying, is that like until you're out in the real world handling the situations hand on hand, I mean, you can study all you want about it. But until you actually do it, it's a different beast. So that's a very good point. Now, some types of skills you can learn in the classroom. For example, physics, one of the things I studied, here's the equation, here's the formula, here's how it works. We go, okay, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to understand here is a field and here's how this field acts on a particle. And I get it. What you told me in a classroom, that's what I'm going to look for in the field. On the other hand, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to negotiating, when it comes to team building, it's as you describe. You can read the book, but it's just not the same. And now it's ironic. We would never say to a 16-year-old, hey, so uh, you've been in a car before, right? You've seen your parents drive. Here are the keys. Go off. Good luck. Try not to hit anyone. <laughs> right, yeah. But this is what we do to managers. We say, okay, you've been an individual contributor. Congratulations. You're a manager. Here's the keys to managing the team. Good luck. Or maybe we send them to a two-day training program. And so the way we teach these skills at MIT in the program I mentioned, the Career Success Accelerator, it's not me and other people like me just lecturing at the students. We have them do hands-on, role-playing, experiential exercises where they practice, where they start to understand what's happening because the, the analogy I use, it's like sports. I can tell you how basketball works, I can tell you the rules, but you actually have to drill and try and practice. And you get the idea of passing, but until you're passing as the opposing team is trying to steal the ball, you just don't get the subtleties of it. And that's how all these skills, management, leadership, and these other skills, that's how they work. You have to understand them in the context in which they are executed. I really appreciate you saying that. And one of the things that I've consistently confronted as I've grown in my career at a pretty rapid pace at a young age is not just learning those skills, but also figuring out as a woman in upper management, how I navigate around certain complexities. Like, how do I learn how to network? You know, I can't just network like one of the guys because then I'm labeled as being you know, too masculine, or I can't lead like a man or negotiate like a man when I'm trying to get a promotion. And so in your work at MIT, what's your expertise around differentiating for genders so that women and men can find equal success in their careers? Great question. Some things like career planning That's pretty general to both. But when it comes to certain topics like leadership and communication, one of the experts on this is a woman named Deborah Tannen. 
She's a linguist at Georgetown, and I cite her in my book. She has a fantastic book called Talking 9 to 5. She talks about the double bind that women face in leadership. Right. And you've alluded to this, that what is acceptable for men, you know, I can be kind of domineering and commanding. Some people are okay with that. Some might not. But, okay, he's, he's a guy. He's just very headstrong and commanding. And that's how some guys are. And that helps me appear as a leader to some. But a woman who does that, that is a negative. Right. And the essence of the double bind is that the attributes that we perceive that make someone a good leader are in direct conflict to the attributes that we perceive that make someone a good woman in the classic sense, the feminine things that we look for in a woman. And so you have this woman who... She she has to violate one of those two, and that makes it very difficult. Do you think that now, a lot of guys get kind of um, thrown back by that when, when a woman asserts herself that way? Unfortunately, some do. And women as well are also guilty of this. Women also hold women to these values and say, are you a woman or a leader? And you're violating one of those. We all do it. There is no easy answer. There's no, well, just do this and it works. But all of us need to keep this in mind, men and women, and we need to recognize when a woman does something, the way she communicates, the way she leads, the way she manages, if you feel a little put off by it, take a moment, ask yourself, if I saw a man do this, if I pick someone else in your company and this guy did that, said that, behaved that way, how would I perceive it versus how it was when she did it? And if you find you would perceive it differently, that's the point where you kind of check yourself and say, okay, I should not hold it against her. And Amen. that's really, that's the best thing that we need to do to start to address this. You're preaching to the choir right now. I love hearing men and men in leadership speak on this topic because it was a big emphasis in my doctoral dissertation where I was talking about the underrepresentation of not just women, but Latinas in upper level educational leadership. But the the double bind is something that it's felt across industries. And, you know, I think Sheryl Sandberg, when she wrote her book, Lean In, was really bringing up this concept of the word bossy or women being called the B word because they're coming in um, in the same presence that a man might step in with um, asking for job promotion or higher pay or trying to negotiate or network. But uh, people tend to say, oh, well, that's she's trying to be a man or she's being too masculine. She's being bossy or using really derogatory terms. And I, Chris and I have this conversation when, you know, he's pulling up a little like, oh, that woman is, you know, oh, she's bossy. And I'm like, would you say that if she was a guy? And I think I run up against this a lot professionally. And what would be your advice for a woman like me who's, I think, kind of rubbing up against that glass ceiling on how to negotiate my future career path? So negotiate a career path as opposed to negotiation, because those are right. separate issues. But I think one of the things we have to do is educate people on what leadership is. And within my leadership chapter, there's a section called the myth of the alpha male. We have this perception of what a leader should be. And that perception often corresponds to this 1950s leading man in a movie. Right. That's our image of a leader. And we see it time and again in Hollywood. Yeah, the hero. And if you ask, yeah, 
the, the hero in the classic, you know, he's decisive, he's commanding, he barks orders, he doesn't show emotion. And that's our classic view. Sure, some of the more modern leading men characters in movies can now show emotion and other things, but still that stereotype is this 1950s man. And we, as a society or as a team in our company, need to start to have an open conversation about what is acceptable because most of us are okay at a conscious level of it's okay for you as a leader to be vulnerable, to cry, to not make snap decisions to say, I need to think about this and then come back and say, here's why I've decided. And at conscious level, we get that, but we still have these unconscious biases. But by having these discussions and being more aware, we can start to come together and say, hey, you know, Yes, of these people who they're vying to both be seen as leaders, this first person might exhibit those qualities, but I recognize um, I'm responding to them subconsciously. But if I think about both of these candidates, they both have the conscious qualities that I admire in a leader. And so I think for all of us, conveying and teaching our entire organization about leadership and about other skills will help us succeed in what are truly valuable leadership skills and not what are perceived as valuable leadership skills. You bring up so many valid points and you were talking about the career accelerator at MIT, but it also sounds like you have some great expertise in understanding organizational optimization. So do you work just with small groups of students or do you also work and support larger organizations that are trying to really help their workforce grow and develop? I've been a CTO in parallel to all my teaching at MIT. I'm not simply some academic instructor. So I've actually run companies, run organizations. I typically build startups and we go from very small teams. I show up at companies, sometimes they're single digits or tens or twenties of people and then grow them to be scores of people, hundreds of people. I've also helped a couple of Fortune 500s who wanted to play startup and had to grow teams within a larger organization. So I've definitely run the gamut in creating new ventures and in growing those teams and organizations. I do have on my website a free download for how companies can actually develop these skills across your organization completely free. I just give it away. I don't try to sell it as consulting. And it's based on the principles that we've learned in teaching for 20 years at MIT. Companies can do this in-house at effectively no cost. Wow, there you go. Yeah, that's amazing. And and so what is that website? I know we'll revisit it at the end, but since you're plugging it now, we'd love to let our listeners know where to find it so they can download it while they're listening. If you go to the careertoolkitbook.com, that's the website. If you go to the resources page, it's the very first download. And here's the essence of how it works. We need to train people through peer learning groups. Often companies will say, all right, we're going to send you to this two-day training program where we'll bring in someone to come speak for a day. And we talked about, like with sports, you'd never say, okay, you're going to be on the basketball team, so we're going to send you to a two-day clinic. You're done. No more training this year. You (laughs) learned. Now just go play. But we have to keep playing. We also, when we play, we, we do drills. We do scrimmage games. We'll watch the tape of other players to learn what they do, to learn about ourselves. So we can replicate this doing peer learning groups within our organization. So you get a group of people together. 
I recommend groups of around five to eight people, but I talk about ways you can scale it up. If you don't want to do lots of tiny groups, there are ways you can do bigger groups. And you get folks together and you engage with some content. Now, yes, you can read my book and I show how to chop it up, read these 10 pages or those 10 pages, depending on what you want to cover. If you don't want to use my book, use a different book, use an article, use a great podcast like this one. Doesn't matter where you get the content. You take content related to the topic. You have everyone read those pages, listen to the podcast episode, and then discuss it. Because it's in that discussion, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's what you were alluding to earlier. That's really the context in which this works. So we can talk about theories behind leading and, oh, what you should do, but there's no one universal formula. As we talk about leading, you're going to share with me an experience you had, and someone else is going to share an experience he had. I'm going to say, oh, wow, he never would have thought of it this way. Hey, I've got this leadership challenge. I'm thinking of doing it this way. What do you think? Can you give me some feedback? And this is how we learn by doing it at a regular cadence, say twice a month. You now have it just like we practice and we drill on our sports teams on a regular basis. And by getting the different opinions and circumstances, you see it in the real context because there is no simple formula to memorize, no magic three steps to make it work. You have to look at it in the context. This is all free. And by the way, if you do this at a company, not only are you upskilling your employees, you are helping them develop internal networks, you are improving your employee engagement, and you are developing a common language across your entire team that will help everyone communicate more effectively. And again, all of this is completely free. That's so powerful. I know that common language, especially around growth and improvement, is really critical for so many organizations and something that they really lack in their infrastructure. And so I'd like to float back just for a couple of minutes. You talked about your own education and now you're teaching and you have this amazing book, but where was the personal inspiration for this? How did you reveal some of your own personal gaps and start to develop this content? The first moment for me was, it was probably about two different moments for different aspects. The first one for the career, I was at a company and the company split in two. The founders had a falling out. So the CTO left, started his own company, and he invited me to go along with him. And the existing company said, hey, we know he's leaving. He probably offered you a job. You're welcome to stay. And I had to make a decision. I was just happy to sit there and float along at the company. I liked the people. I liked the work. But now I had a decision. Which job should I take? And to answer that, I had to think about what do I want? Not just today in a job, but where am I going? Which job is going to take me there? Right, yeah. And so, yeah, I started to think about that that future in that direction and then realized I had more than two choices and set myself off on a path to get there. You know, funny you said that. Christine and I had this deep conversation the other day talking about careers and how I got me thinking about how, like, most of us are kind of programmed to walk into a company and stay there and, and sink our teeth into it and stay there till we die forever, forever. <laughs> like, like just ride it out no matter what happens. And I know that uh, like even today, like, like I think the most successful people on the planet are risk takers and they will decide to choose th- this or that to not just kind of, some people just play it safe their entire life rather than take a risk, take a gamble on a new jumping ship to a different company or, or a different career path. Uh, do you see that a lot? 
I think most people are wired that way. There is, in just my experience, I can't say I've seen full-on research studies, some generational difference. Certainly the baby boomers were very much set up for that. Yes. Gen X, we were a little more independent. Millennials, I think, are a little more open to, to changing. I know I swung a bit the other way, and that appears on my resume because I would then join a company, and I join, as I mentioned, early-stage startups, where it's not uncommon for us to pivot, for us to very much change our company, our direction, our mission, our structure. And so I've walked in places where they're still willing to hire me, they're still happy to keep me, but I realize on some subtle level, I might have the job title, the salary, but the direction the company is now going in the next few years is not the direction I'm interested in for my own personal development, and I'll actually leave. And that throws a lot of people because I probably swing a lot the other way. <laughs> right. I just see a lot of it, especially in my line of work. I see a lot of other companies. I mean, I'm, I'm a truck driver that delivers gasoline locally here in San Diego, and there's a lot of other companies, uh, carrier companies that do the same thing. And you'll see one guy working for one company one week, and then he'll be working for another company the next week, and then another company the week after that. Everybody seems to like jump ship a lot, and the ones that work for our company seem to stick it out. But there is like, there's a lot of morale that seems to be kind of like, I don't say like, it's hard to explain, but it seems like the morale isn't isn't quite as there as it used to be in, in other years before. But I think that part of that is because it goes back to what Mark is talking about with the lack of upskilling, that lack of the investment of the organization to build you up. And fortunately, you have been tapped on the shoulder for leadership now being a driver trainer. But, you know, Mark, this goes back to my question for you. When you have an organization who's focusing more on the technical for the professional learning sessions, like the the rules and the new safety procedures versus those more transferable career skills, what could a person like Chris do to be able to upskill himself to be more marketable for his company or others? Great question. And we should look at this historically because, of course, you go back mid-century, you had the social contract that you work at a company for a long time, you'll get a certain level of promotion on some schedule, and you said this was fine. What we started to see, especially in the 2000s, is people recognized, you know what, I can change from this job to the next job, and I get some type of bump, whether it is a pay raise, just an automatic X dollars more per hour, or a few thousand dollars more a year, or some more seniority and title. And the fastest way to really move along your career was to jump job, was to change jobs. Now, there's some long-term consequences that if it shows you're changing jobs a lot, right, yeah. right, that's going to come back to bite you. And most people don't understand the long-term implications. But the question we're seeing now, especially amidst the great resignation, what is that contract between the company and the employee? Because it became very much in the 80s and 90s, it's about money, right? In the greed is good era, this is where I said, we're going to pay you this money and you do your job and more money for better work. But people these days, particularly we see among millennials and I think among Gen Z, people are saying, I care about the mission. I care about corporate social responsibility. I care about the impact of my work. I care about the culture. And it's no longer just tell me how much money I can make here. 
And so we're rewriting that contract right now during the Great Resignation. And I think we're going to see people are saying, I want to learn and grow and develop. So companies need to invest, not just pay people with cash, but pay people with development. So to your question itself, when we look at some of these universal skills, not just here's the safety training for this machine that we use at this company, but let's talk about leadership. Let's talk about communication and conflict resolution. Those are skills that will apply across your entire career, and you know they are foundational and will help you now and in the future. That's really great advice. So Chris, you're going to need to listen to this a couple times over again because he's given you a good roadmap. But Mark, Thanks, you, Mark. <laughs> but Mark, you said a term that I'm not familiar with twice, and it was you referenced the great resignation. What is that? That is what we're seeing right now in the labor market. There is an unprecedented number of people who are resigning from their jobs. Now, at first, back over the summer, about six months ago, people were questioning, why is this happening? Why is there such demand in the labor marketplace? Is it people are staying home because they're afraid of COVID? Are people staying home because unemployment benefits are really good? Are people staying home because they didn't like their jobs anymore? And what we've seen now months later, we've seen COVID dropped. And at the time of this taping, it's back up in the midst of Omicron, but right. we'll drop right, again. Yeah. We've seen the unemployment benefits throughout 2020 wound down sometime around August, September, depending on what state you were in. And yet there is still a massive number of open roles. I think the number as of this recording is about 10 million open jobs. Wow. Companies cannot find people to take. Meanwhile, there is also each month, millions of people are resigning from their jobs and they're taking new ones. So what we're seeing, it's called the great resignation because these are unprecedented resignation numbers here in the US and we see similar data in Europe. People are effectively saying, I'm madder than hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore. And they're referring to their jobs. We see this a lot with hospitality workers who are saying, I'm earning minimum wage I'm dealing with a pandemic. I don't have a clear schedule because my manager can change it up every week and that makes it hard for me to plan childcare or my other responsibilities. I'm getting yelled at by angry customers. This isn't worth it. I don't wanna do this anymore. And so we're seeing a revolt by the labor force for effectively a change in conditions. It's the biggest, I'd say, change in labor since the labor movement of the early 19th, early 20th century. That is so crazy that you mentioned that. It's, it's unbelievable because uh, I think it was at like like early 2021, we were seeing every single fast food place, every single store, every, I mean, whether it's Target, Walmart, Best Buy, McDonald's, all of them had big banners in front of their building, now hiring. I think even uh, there's a fast food company out here called Jack in the Box. They've got a banner flag outside of every single of their, of their restaurants hiring every Tuesday. They say Tuesday interviews, every Tuesday hiring on the spot. Um, I've never seen that ever anywhere. And you and I just went out yesterday for a lunch break and the restaurant that it was a sit-down restaurant, just kind of a more casual eatery. And it was super understaffed, and the uh, we just happened to sit at the bar because it was like the only open and clean seating. I mean, it wasn't that there were so many people there, but they were so understaffed that they couldn't bust the tables. And the bartender you was know, so sweet, and she was like, I'm so sorry. I was like, hey, we get it. You don't need to apologize. We'll sit here and we'll wait because like you're saying, there's this 
there's a lack of a, there's a high demand, but there's a lack of a supply of workers that actually want to enter into some of these positions. But then for so many people that are out in industry that had the luxury of being able to work from home and actually liked it, when their employers are starting to call them back to the office, they're now faced with this crossroads of, but why do I need to come back in if I can do my job successfully from home? If you're going to make me come back in, then I'm going to find somebody else who's going to let me work from home because I know I can. Well, I want to know is what, why, if all of the, um, let's just call them like the minimum wage type of jobs, if those are the ones that seem to be bouncing out, what are they going to do for income? They are finding, the early studies are showing, they're just finding other jobs. Oh, so we're just seeing, shifting over then from one to another? Because all these companies that are hiring, they are offering better the minimum wage. Yeah. Many of them are now starting to offer bonuses. How often have we seen a bonus at this type of fast food restaurant at a retail store? But especially over the Christmas period, they were saying, if you work you know, these shifts, if you make it for this period, we will give you a bonus. And we're talking hundreds, even $1,000, because they were so desperate for workers. You know what? So- you, you bring up a really interesting point because Chris's sister was just over here for like Christmas time and she was mentioning to us she works in um, on one of the reservations here in San Diego in the casino as a um, like a drink server and she was telling us that they've been adding in bonuses you know every three or four months to her paycheck to make up for you know, maybe not having as many tips because they're trying to keep their workers there. And that's something I'd never heard before, like a waitress, a drink waitress getting, you know, $250, $500, every couple of months just for showing up to work. And it was like kind of mind-blowing to me. It's unprecedented, but very much needed. We've seen the last few years, the labor movement was pushing for a $15 minimum wage which has taken in some states, but not others. But even the people who got that $15 minimum wage, we've seen a lot of those gains now eaten by the recent inflation. And so they're going to wind up back where they were. I think the the labor movement, certainly for, let's call them blue collar or minimum wage workers or lower wage workers, uh, I think we're going to see a continued push as long as the economy stays strong. Obviously, if we enter a recession, there could be a reversal. But you also mentioned we see with white-collar workers, with those who can work from home, those typically in college degree jobs, they're also saying, why do I have to be in the office five days a week or even three days a week in some cases? They're saying, you know what, during the pandemic, you were there supporting me. You were saying, hey, just keep working. Sorry, it's a really stressful time in April 2020, but we need you to work. Whereas other companies were saying, hey, look, everyone, you know what? You've been going at this, if you remember back to April 2020, it's been stressful, there's uncertainty, your kids are at home, they're bouncing off the walls, you know, take every Friday off for the next month, or we're all going to take a work week off because we just know it's stressful for everyone. And so workers and in, in offices are saying some companies are showing they care about us, others don't. So who do you think is winning out those talent wars? Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a really good point. Well, on the the cusp of the second anniversary of the pandemic being rampant on a global scale and amidst the great resignation and these shifting labor conditions and labor market trends, what words of wisdom and resources do you have to offer to our listening audience? 
a few things. First, the medical professionals and virologists I listen to. I am not one. I am not an expert. But the qualified professionals, the doctors out there, tell me historically pandemics have lasted three seasons and that becomes endemic. So we saw this, for example, with the Spanish flu. We had a couple of bad years. Now we have the flu every season, but it's endemic. And so they say this is likely the outcome we're going to see after this winter. So we're likely to return to a new normal after that. Again, this is coming from the experts, the medical professionals, Mm -hmm. not from me because I am not an expert there. So I think we're going to get to a more stable labor market, but we will continue to see demand for labor outstrip supply, which puts people who are in the labor force looking for a new job or at a current job in the driver's seat. Don't just optimize for, oh, okay, great. I can get that bonus. I can get a little more money. (laughs) Do so if you can, but also think long term. How can you set yourself up not just for more money today, but to put yourself on management track or get some training or set yourself up so you are moving ahead in your career and optimizing for the long term? That's awesome. That's really good advice. And then tell us more about your book so that our listeners can take advantage of being able to grab a copy of that to help them. The book has 10 chapters. These are the 10 skills that companies have said, these are the skills we want to see in the workforce. This isn't what I came up with one night. This is from surveys done at MIT and other universities. And this applies not just to college students, but to everyone in the labor force. So 10 skills in three sections. Section one, how to create and execute a career plan. Chapter two is how to work effectively, managing your manager, understanding corporate politics. Chapter three, interviewing. Not just as a candidate, but many of us also have to hire other people and learning to do both sides of it makes you more effective on both sides of the interviewing table. Section two, leadership and management. So I focus on leadership and then the two different aspects of management, the people side of it and the process side of it. And the third section, interpersonal dynamics, it covers communication, networking, negotiation, and ethics. All the skills we've heard about, we know they're important, but probably no one sat down to teach them. That's really insightful in terms of the types of topics that you address within your book. I wanted to dig deeper on one before we wrap this up for today, because as you've heard, Chris and I talk a lot about careers and career paths at home. It's something that is very intriguing to us. But when you were talking about leadership and management, um, can you help our listeners understand the difference between what makes a leader versus what makes a good manager? That is a very subtle question. (laughs) And there's lots of different answers to that. The one that I think really embodies it for me is the quote, nobody ever managed men into battle. Yeah. It's subtle, but it starts to give you a sense of the difference. But importantly, I distinguish them in the book in a very wax on, wax off, let's look at the fundamentals (laughs) type of way. If you don't know that reference, you need to watch The Karate Kid. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we get it. But at the end of that section, I close by saying, good leaders know how to manage, good managers know how to lead. And so in the end, I'll use another sports analogy, you might practice shooting, you might practice rebounding, you might practice passing, 
but a good basketball player. You might be slightly stronger at one or the other, but you know how to do it all and you do what is needed in the moment. So you should study them independently to really understand them, but recognize in the real world, they are going to blur and that is okay. You know, that reminds me of an analogy that Chris used for me just, I think it was just a couple of days ago. And there's a restaurant chain out here in California and the West Coast that's called In-N-Out Burger. And perhaps you heard of it. (laughs) And one of the... Yes, very famous. Yeah. And one of the big parts of their training is that when they bring in a new employee, they help them to become proficient at any one of the jobs. So should they need to step in, they're able to. And I think that... That's kind of that concept of a strong leader and also a strong manager is they're willing to put in the work to help the organization best become what it needs to be versus just staying on the technical side because leaders do need to dip into management tasks and good managers do need to be able to lead their people and not just stay isolated on that technical. And so um, we just think that In-N-Out Burger is a great example of that. I love it. I'm getting hungry, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Very well said. Now, Mark, we've talked a lot about your professional background, but before we close it out, I just have to ask, because I was reading um, a bit about your bio and living in New York City, it says that you throw some kind of epic Halloween party every year. First of all, what is it like? And second of all, how do Chris and I get invited? (laughs) Other than the past two years, I have been doing Halloween parties for 23 years, first back in Cambridge and now here in New York. And I'll typically get about, at the peak, I was getting close to 100 people in and out throughout the night. Wow. Now that I'm getting a little older, it's closer to about 70 some people will get. And everyone shows up. Costumes are required. There's a costume contest at midnight. Nice. I decorate my entire apartment. So I actually dedicate... My very precious, limited closet space in my New York apartment <laughs> to boxes of Halloween decorations so I can put it up for one week a year. Because uh, Halloween is just my favorite holiday, and I oh, hope maybe, to have you guys yeah. out for it next year. So what are some of your Halloween party themes? I don't have a theme for the party. I've debated doing that. I do, however, make a different costume each year. And my rule is it has to be something I create. I can't just go buy something off the store and put it on. I can buy the parts from the store, Okay, but I have to create it myself. Home Depot, here you come. (laughs) And what's the most extravagant Halloween costume that you've created for yourself? Extravagant costume? I would say it was 2008. I went as a financial bailout. (laughs) Nice, how appropriate, yeah. I was dressed in a suit I had a backpack on as my parachute. (laughs) Coming out, there was a parachute over my head, and the top of the parachute, I had wires holding it up. The parachute was made with actual, an actual printout of the financial bailout bill, as well as stock certificates from Lehman Brothers and maybe one or two other companies that were being bailed out. (laughs) The backpack had as its symbol, because the military, you have your insignias. I used the treasury signal, Operation Golden Parachute, no millionaire left behind. (laughs) Wow, I love it. Now, if you didn't get an award for that, I don't know what to tell you, man. That was amazing. 
Well, we well, it's, definitely... It's my party, so I don't qualify for the award. <laughs> oh, Well, man. if we happen to be in New York City or Manhattan area around Halloween, we'll definitely reach out to see how we might be able to score one of those golden tickets to get in the door. But Chris, that means you're going to have to actually dress up and no, not as yourself, even oh, though that's scary on. enough. Come on. Oh, thank you. By the way, thank you. But not my generic, like, this is my Halloween t-shirt. t-shirt. <laughs> No, you'd actually have to like be in the running. For hey, Mar- it. hey, Mark, before I let you go here, one of the things I did hear about was that someone told me that someone said that you have an experience tracking down criminals on the dark web. Yes, indeed. So I've been a CTO at a number of companies, but my graduate work was in cryptography. That's secret codes, that's cybersecurity. It's how we keep your passwords and your credit cards safe. Usually, I'm working on tools that will help protect your data. For this particular company, we were doing effectively intelligence gathering. So by understanding how terrorists and cyber criminals, how are they organizing, planning, what are they thinking of doing, when, how, we could get that intelligence and provide it to our customers who were various corporations and government agencies, and that helped them better prepare and defend and protect people. So that's what I did for a little while. So password is not a good password to have, I, I would say. <laughs> One, two, three, four. No. Man. Yeah. It's a quick heard... cybersecurity tip. Get a password manager, turn on two-factor authentication, and install an antivirus. If you're doing those three things, you are in pretty good shape. Oh, interesting. Those okay. are really great tips. Yeah, I, I never, I never, a lot of people don't follow up on that stuff because they're just so used to, I know that a lot of people do, is they'll keep the same password for like everything. You, you see not to do that, right? <laughs> Because we're going to steal your Netflix password, which I can buy your Netflix password for a couple dollars online. And chances are that's also the password to your bank. And thieves know this. Wow. What? <laughs> okay. You're breaking it down for us. So uh, people today, if you haven't, it's time for your beginning of the year technology tune up. Go change your passwords and not all to the same thing. Uh Get a hold of Mark's resources on the, is it the careertoolkitbook.com? That's right, the careertoolkitbook.com. And where can our listeners find you on social media? If you go to the website, the careertoolkitbook.com, and go to the contact page, you can see me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and on Facebook. I don't have the same name on all of them because some of those were taken on some. So go to the website, go to the contact page, and you can find where I am on each one to follow me. Fantastic. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We wish you all the best of luck, and we are also wishing you good luck that you'll be able to host that Halloween party again this year. Thanks again for having me on the show. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Hey there, K2 crew. We love having you as our loyal listeners. To keep up to date with what's happening behind the scenes, check us out on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Yeah, tag us in your favorite fun stories. And guess what? You might just end up on the show. You know, wow, Mark was fantastic. He really was. I loved how he talked about so many of those different skills that students don't develop when they're getting ready to go into industry. And it's just had me thinking a lot about our own kids and what we can do here at home so that they're not behind. I mean, I I think we talk about that a lot where you try to make things very practical and logical. 
and try to keep me from being so philosophical. Like you try to keep me grounded. Well, someone's got it. You know what I'm saying? Gosh. <laughs> I float up in the air with all my ideas. But I think, I think a lot of women do. My, I what? Yeah. Way to stereotype. Thank um, you, Mr. Macho Man. Well, you're macho, macho man. Thank you. I've been called that before. But yeah, um, you know, I'm just saying that I think a lot of people do is they'll, they'll try to like, I mean, I do daydream a lot, honestly. Mm-hmm. I do think about it. It is in the clouds from some sometimes i guess right but a lot of people they do try to theorize or kind of just generalize when it goes in like going out into the job market but the thing is is nowadays you have to have such a breadth of different skills and you have to be able to apply things like it's not in the old days like mark was talking about where you would get a job and you just stay in it for your entire life you need to constantly be improving and developing yourself and building like your critical thinking and your communication skills because people need employees that are versatile in their you know, job. You know, it's funny. Someone told me this years and years ago. They told me this. They said you should always have like every year or so, you should always have your resume updated and ready to go. Oh, yeah. That's a good, good idea. And I've never – I always thought like the only time I really ever did that was when I was looking for a job. I would do all the – of course, you need your resume together for that. And then after you land your job, that resume trash can and delete it. You don't even think about it. Seriously, I update mine like every three or four months as I get See? new experiences. See? And then other things kind See? of are outdated or irrelevant based off of the industry because it's like – If I was to say that I had like a beginning level of proficiency with Microsoft Word and somebody was to look at that now, they'd be like, oh my gosh, she's a dinosaur. Where it's like now people want to see that you're not just proficient in Word, but Adobe and web design and graphic design. Do you have to use, uh, you put on your resume, I know how to use Netscape. What? What is Netscape? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was like it was like the premier internet uh, search engine, like search. Oh my uh, word! I, that's so crazy. That you know, I think we had that on my word processor when I was young. Oh um, yeah. Oh my gosh! I was thinking of you the other day, though, talking about tech skills. Is some girl was posting? Finally remembered my MySpace password and logged in. Fun times. Is it still there? <laughs> I think so. I don't know. We need to find out if MySpace is still there. I heard it turned into like this music, like. So I went like I think Justin uh, Timberlake bought it or did something he co-owned it or something for a minute and they turned it into some kind of like like a music sharing platform. Yeah, kind of the way SoundCloud is, but but a, but for MySpace, it was kind of the same. That thing. That makes no sense. Yeah, I heard that, and then after that, I haven't heard nothing, so I have no idea. Let's bring it back. MySpace was fun times. Let's bring back. Oh, it the was space. the wild wild west when it came <laughs> to social media. Remember your top eight? Was it top eight or top four? I don't even remember. That was so long ago. Your pictures of your friends. You have your top friends. Like, it was funny. They had like your top five or top ten friends on your front page. They were like right there in their profiles with their pictures and stuff. And then like you get jealous. Like, why am I not in the top ten? <laughs> why, 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 is, why is Susie in the top ten? Why am I not in the top ten? I'm way cooler than she is. Is she your friend? Are you, are you saying she's your best friend? What's up with that? <laughs> okay. I have to tell you about Facebook. Uh, the first time that I ever heard of Facebook was I was a uh, teacher on special assignment at a high school. And I used to do a lot of work with the leadership class, like the ASB leadership students. And I was walking across campus with this one senior and she was like the ASB president. And she was telling me about this new social social thing. Um, and she didn't even call it social media, but she said this new social platform. And it's something that a lot of college kids are into. And it's really cool. And you should join. And she called it Facebook. And she's like, I think I'm going to join. I totally discounted it for like, I don't know, two or three more years. I wonder how many friends I would have 
and maybe what influencer status I'd have if I jumped on Facebook like right then when it was just coming about. I actually did jump on Facebook when it first came out. I was on when MySpace was still hot and heavy. It was like the big thing. This new thing called Facebook came out. And I was like, let me check this. Let's check out what's going on over here. So I jumped on Facebook before anybody else did. And then, you know, and then you just abandoned ship. And you then just it, got and everybody, burned out. everybody just comes on after I, I'm like a tread center. So everybody follows me. <laughs> and then I'm like, ah, it's not too cold no more, you know? So, and then you jumped off and then you haven't gotten a Facebook profile again. And now look at you. You're like the social media, social media mogul. I was thinking about this when, after Mark talked to us about career skills. And I was like, you know what? You would be really good for like, if somebody hired you for social media marketing. Because you're constantly on there networking and connecting and trying new things to try and get like the follower count up on Twitter and trying to post. I mean, you're very consistent in posting, even if it's like reposting for the Chris and Christine show and Podtastic Audio Instagrams. You're very engaged with like getting new content up there. Sometimes I'm like, can you get your face out of your phone? And you're like, but I'm working. I'm like, that's true. Ah. I am. I think I was trying to say is like, if you're trying to. I think there's a, there's a fine line where you go too much, where you're like becoming like a spammer pretty much on social. Yeah, and sometimes you do that. I know. I think I said I, the fine line. It's so fine. It's like a hair. I can't see it. <laughs> but um, you want like, the always thing is like always be posting too. Like if you if you think about like TV commercials, I mean, I know they pay for those advertisement spots and the TV and the shows like Super Bowl commercials and stuff. But the, you'll see the commercial being played throughout the, the show you're watching, like this segment is sponsored by so and so or whatever. I think of Twitter and Instagram, I think of social media is like that big giant show that everybody's watching. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like to, I like to just kind of like put my advertisement in there, like, hey, we have yeah. a podcast, here it is, check it out. And I may post quite a bit. I th- that's the thing, I, I keep it going. Like, I keep posting yeah, and reposting you do. just to kind of get the. Sometimes I'll see like the amount of stories you have, and it like reminds me, oh, Christine, you got to be more regular in your posting. I think the difference is I'm trying to constantly like create content related to my business and like not just posting. I'm not diminishing what you do, but you know, posting the pre-made episode promos is one a lot of what you do or reposting people's stories, but I'm having to create new content and create new posts, uh, profiling my, like showcasing my clients or like new up and coming things in my business. And that's where I think it gets a little bit intense. I, I just have to get bad, better at building that skill of like the social content curation and development and I always wondered, like, these people that can get, like, 10,000, 15,000 followers that aren't famous to begin with, and they become, like, influencers, and they're not, like, famous for anything well, do you else. Think, do you think that some of those are prepaid? Because you look at the advertisements, we'll say, we'll get you, like, 30,000 uh, followers if you pay us X amount of dollars. No, because if you do that on Instagram now and they find out, then you get banned. And, you, like, they can tell who the bots are or who buys followers but there's people that have like really authentic engagement and i just like i followed some of their their journeys professionally and seen that they've been blogging or like influencing since instagram like came out and they have these huge followings and i think man i i ha- wonder how people figure out what those upcoming trends are and jump on them and like I, I always wonder about that. Like you've yeah, been getting all these know. people that are like get on discord and you're like uh eh, i don't know it takes too much time and then i wonder well, wow, if he was to jump on Discord 10 years down the line, would it be like a huge moneymaker? I always wonder those things. Like, am I missing the boat? Hey, you know what? I'm an old fuddy-duddy, so I don't know <laughs> half the stuff to tell you. I just go on whatever. 
I just go on whatever works for you. Like, mm-hmm. like think about your day, your your life. What can you handle? Like how much can you handle? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were just uh, we're not eighteen year olds living at home, you know, doing nothing, mm-hmm. you know, all day playing on our phones, right? Um, you know, you know. So I think it, that's why I try to do things very easy. Mm-hmm. I guess when it comes to social media stuff, Maybe. like how to post and how to create stuff and make it out there. And, and I know I don't, there, there's some things that I wish I could do, but I still don't do because I don't physically have enough time mm-hmm. to do it. You think of my phone now, if I was doing more. I know if you had it as a job, <laughs> but I think you'd have to figure out how to do it on a computer when you are doing it as a job. Of I course, just, yeah. I just realized for the first time that I can post to Instagram from my computer. I thought it was only an app. Oh, no thing. way. Yeah. Yeah. It's on my computer. And same thing with uh, Twitter, too. I, I've done that for my computer a few times it's actually funny thing about twitter there's a computer another tw- a twitter app or program for the computer I had it on the other computer for a minute mm-hmm. it was called like tweet deck or something like that you ever seen it no it, it makes your entire computer like look like this big old like spreadsheet twitter spreadsheet kind of thing what yeah it's like really crazy you see like one column will be like the feed one column will be like your messages one column will be like I don't know. There's all it puts it in columns. That's crazy. Yeah. So like, and then a column of some other, like if you have like say a tag you're looking into, it'll be a column for that. But it's all like spread out on the entire screen. But you know what's so interesting is it's like the skills that people need right now to thrive in industry are so different. I mean, there's some things that are transferable, like critical thinking, project management, problem solving, and things like that. But more and more employers, like professionally, are looking for people that have that ability to um, catch attention quickly. Like if you think of a reel, like an Instagram reel, it's like 10 or 15 seconds. It's like, how do you capture people's attention that quickly? And how do you like build a following without having to actually be like a quote unquote leader? It's like, how do you build a presence and a digital footprint that is going to draw people into the business. Have the last name Kardashian. <laughs> That's all I got to do. Yes. Well, I mean, we're we're on our way there. We we have our name starting with K's, right? Absolutely, baby doll. Well, so, how do we get famous, Chris? Where can people find us? Well, if you want a place to start, on the old World Wide Web uh, map book. <laughs> <laughs> map book? <laughs> you, <laughs> Didn't it Bill Gates or was it? No. Who was it that said they invented the webs, like the interwebs? It was um, Al Gore. Oh yeah, <laughs> why did I confuse him with Bill Gates? <laughs> yeah, well, whatever, old, old yeah. white guy. <laughs> well, where can people find us on the on the webs? You can find us at chrisandchristineshow.com. And then what about on our social media accounts that well, you keep up so well? Oh, I know it's uh, on the old Twitter tweet tweet. You go to uh, K Two Show San Diego, mm-hmm. and if you want to head over to the old Instagram, it is the K2 show. Yeah. So look I up. I know the K2 show San Diego. Well, look us up on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we do have a Facebook page. And then check out our website. We would love for you to listen, subscribe, and share this episode. And head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We love those five stars, but p- please be honest. Right, Chris? Absolutely. Honesty is king. Absolutely. Especially when you get pulled over by the cops. <laughs> and you can also tell us who your favorite podcast host is of this show. Um, we do have a little competition going, so vote for Christine. Wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. Stop the press. <laughs> well, we would love those reviews. So hop on over, listen, subscribe, share and rate us and we'll be back with you next week. 